Here we are again, church. Welcome to our Wednesday night devotional refresh. Uh, we, when we can't gather physically quite yet, we can still gather our minds and our hearts around God's Word. And we're working our way through Mark's Gospel, close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark. And, and again, the idea being from Paul in his letter to the church at Corinth, beholding the glory of our Lord, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So it's not, it's not just academic, though I hope we pick up some ways of studying a text devotionally. But the idea isn't just a mental capacity. It's, uh, it's uh, our love for Jesus and our hearts being transformed bit by bit by bit as we study the glory of Jesus. We're in Mark chapter 4. I hope you have a Bible with you. I want to talk to you about Jesus and the storms of life. So let's start with uh, Mark 4. We'll read 35 to 41, Jesus calming the storm. On that day, this is Mark 4, 35, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. It's crashing over the side, filling up the boat. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. He'd just been ministering, busy, he's beat, he's asleep in, in the boat. And they woke him, 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? There it is. That's the kind of accusatory question. Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And, and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then look at this in 41. And they were filled with great fear. Now they're not afraid of the waves. The waves are gone. They're not afraid of the wind. The wind has calmed. So Jesus says to them in verse 40, why were you so afraid? And then 41, and they were filled with great fear. It's, it's uh, what Jesus did in calming the storm filled them with more fear than the wind and the waves previously. It's a fascinating uh, end to this little incident. They were, 41, filled with great fear. And then we get a clue as to what they were afraid of. They said to one another, who, who then is this? So they still do not have a firm grasp of the greatness of Jesus, the glory of our Lord as we're studying. Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. You, you have to wonder as you go through Mark especially, but the other synoptics and even John, why do we have these miracles dealing just with, not with people so much as, as the world of nature, the natural realm, commands over wind and sea and storms, multiplying of bread, fish, things that don't relate to the, the, the healing of a disease in a human being, 
but in this, in this realm of nature. And I have a feeling that Mark wants us to focus on um, Christ's mastery over the outward material world around us. So the disciples are seeing something in Jesus and they're not used to seeing this. They, had, they go to Jesus in the, in the back of the boat and they say, teacher, rabbi, teacher. That's how they wake him up. And, so, and they've seen teachers before, better teachers, worse teachers. Jesus is the greatest teacher. They had seen religious leaders come and create ethical systems. That's still how a lot of people think of Jesus today. He gave us the golden rule. He, he gave us uh, Sermon on the Mount, ethical teachings, how to live life well, how to be successful, how to live your best life now. Bookshelves creak with stuff like this. But the picture Mark gives us and the thing that startles the disciples is while other people came with their philosophies, with their ideas, with their ethical systems, with their teachings, what kind of person speaks to waves and they cease? What kind of person speaks to wind and it calms? I think we're meant to see the uniqueness of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the, the circumstances in our lives that we can't control that are external to just the forgiveness of our sins, precious as that is, and the things we learn at Jesus' feet in our mind, precious as those things are, I think we're meant to see the things we can't control are not beyond his reach. So that prayer and the presence of Jesus can change real events. Real events external to us in the world around us. Things that threaten. They're not beyond the scope of, of his word and his reach. Notice, so, so we can pray for daily bread. I guess that's what I'm saying. With the expectation that Jesus doesn't come just in some psychological way to work in our souls but the material side of life as well. So the disciples, 41, they were filled with great fear, said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? They had heard good teachers, they had heard prophets, but there was an authority in Jesus, and we still need to learn that lesson. There's an authority in Jesus that exceeds all of this. Jesus wasn't angry because his disciples woke him up. That's not the issue. His, his concern is, is for their, their fear, their panic, because they come with this 38, don't you care? Boy, that's a quick reaction sometimes. We pray about something, it doesn't happen the way we want. Doesn't God care? Doesn't God love us? Doesn't God mind and attend to our needs? And, and he wants, you can have the presence of Jesus there in the boat. You can have the presence of Jesus without being aware of the significance of Jesus in your situation. That's where they were at. They could see him there. They could see him sleeping. But the significance of Jesus being with them, that they hadn't perceived, that they hadn't taken in. Like all of us at times, they knew Jesus was present, but, but hadn't thought through the implications of his presence. And, and Jesus wanted them to have confidence in his power, his love, in the middle of the storms of life, 
that they hadn't slipped beyond his grip, beyond his love, beyond his control. He wanted them to learn to have faith when the storms of life raged. So here's a passage that really tells of storms on both the outside, the wind and the waves, and the inside, the fear, the panic. Point number two. Let's start in Mark 5 now. I'm going to read about... I'm going to read about 20 verses, okay? So stay with me. Jesus heals this demon-possessed man. Mark 5, 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, okay, we're picking up right away now, immediately there met him out of the tomb a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, imagine. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, bruising himself with stones. This is quite a picture. 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice. So, the, the demon-possessed man initiates the contact, not Jesus. Jesus doesn't go to the demon-possessed man. The demon-possessed man goes to Jesus. It's interesting. And crying out with a loud voice, verse 7, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, O Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Ten. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs that we may enter them. So he gave them permission. It's a good word, permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, were drowned in the sea. 14. The herdsmen fled. So you have the disciples who, they're afraid when Jesus calms the wind and the waves. And now the herdsmen flee when they see what Jesus has done, told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. Everybody wants to see. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. What is that? He, He takes this demon-possessed man that had, been, that had been terrorizing the community. They've obviously tried. They've chained him. The people have been trying to deal with this guy. And now it's fine. And the people say, Jesus, you got to go. You got to leave. Strange. 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, 
but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Wow. It's a long passage. It's an amazing passage. I want to just pull out maybe three lessons, okay? First, if nothing else, the overarching uh, backdrop to all of this is the nature of the battle in which we are engaged. I mean, notice how Mark clearly states just the futility of all the human attempts. You get it in three and four. Everything the people had tried to do, nobody could solve this problem. So, so this is more than just depression. This is more than insanity. You, you get to the writings of Paul, and, and he seems anxious because, because not everything Satan does looks like this. Okay? This is pretty obvious. This is pretty stark. But, but Paul seems aware, Paul seems aware that we might not recognize that the, the kind of battles we face, even when they don't look like this up front, are still of a spiritual nature. Still of a spiritual nature. So, so Satan looks for openings through our ignorance, through our ignoring his presence, through our... Um, being distracted by external circumstances that surround us. In fact, it's really interesting. I think Paul seems to indicate that if we forget that the kind of battle we're engaged in is a spiritual battle, it will affect our prayer life. That seems to be his concern. I get that. Uh, in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. So right from verse 10, Paul's talking about the armor of God, because verse 12, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Boy, we forget that. Principalities, powers over this present darkness. He talks about standing in the evil day. So what happens when Christians forget that the kind of battles we fight? You sit down, you just turn on, you just turn on the TV, you, you, you get in front of the computer screen, and if you think it's all just just ones and zeros and, and innocent entertainment, and you don't, you don't think that this suddenly is a spiritual battle? Paul says if, if we forget this, it's going to affect our prayer life. And so significantly, right at the, as he wraps up the first half of chapter 6 of Ephesians, right after talking about the kind of spiritual warfare we're all engaged in, and it has to settle into our minds that we're engaged in that kind of spiritual battle, Here's how he wraps up. Praying always, at all times, in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. See, if, if you forget that the ordinary battles of life are never quite ordinary, then you will tend to try and fight them in your own strength. When you forget that the ordinary struggles of life are not quite ordinary struggles, you're not going to pray at all times because you will tend not to feel the need for heavenly resources if it's just a physical earthly battle. So the nature of the battle we're in, that's 2A, the first lesson. Here's the second lesson, B. I'm struck with the nature of the profession of this legion of demons in this man. It's in 6 and 7 of chapter 5. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran 
fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I mean, that's bang on who Jesus is. The disciples didn't recognize it in the boat, but the demons recognize it in the graveyard here. What have you to do with me? Five, seven. Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So, so this demonized man comes, runs up to Jesus, gets into this conversation. I take that to mean he, he sees Jesus and the very presence of Jesus, the coming king and kingdom of Jesus, this legion of demons, they know here's a threat. Here's a threat. There's, there's pressure being brought to bear. The presence of Jesus poses a threat to this demonic stronghold. Now with the coming of Jesus, there's a new disturbance that the demons recognized. There's this accurate acknowledgement of who Jesus is. That's interesting. Jesus, Son of the Most High God, but but then you remember you remember James' words in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. That's what you're seeing here. The demons, they know who Jesus is, but it's a, it's a shuddering response. It's, it's all defensive. It's not a loving response. It's not a humble response or a submissive one. It's, it's, it's all defensive. They fear coming judgment. See, notice the delivered man's response. It's really got a wonderful ending, this account. I get it in 18 through 20 of Mark 5. And as he was getting into the boat, so Jesus is about to leave, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. I want to I go with Jesus. And here's the strange reply. And, and he, Jesus, did not permit him. No. But said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much mercy he has had on you. And he went away, this demon-possessed man, and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone mar marveled. So the demons, threatened by Jesus' presence, now set free this delivered man. At one time, the demons are crying out of this man, avoiding Jesus. Now this delivered man, set free, he wants to go with Jesus. It seems like a wonderful response. So in his enthusiasm, he is willing, this man is willing to leave everything behind. Jesus, we don't know what he had, relationships of any kind. Was there a family that was suddenly going to have a, a young son back to normality? But this, this, this guy's willing to leave it all. I want to leave it all, Jesus. I want to follow you. I want to be with you. And it looks like a model of committed discipleship. Jesus had come to the disciples. He had called Matthew and Peter and John. He had called them to follow him, and they did. Here's a guy who's volunteering to do exactly the same thing, and Jesus won't let him. In this case, at least, Jesus wants him to spend his life exactly where he had been all along. And, and that can be just as much a call 
from Jesus as going somewhere far away. But I'm wondering what the thinking of Jesus was. The text doesn't say, let me tell you what I think. Here's why I think Jesus said, no, he doesn't just say, go back home and have a nap. He says, stay where you are and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. And here's what I think you see here. Where would this man's ministry likely be the most fruitful? Would it be going to a new place where nobody knew of his previous existence? Or would his testimony be more fruitful with friends, relatives, a community that had gotten used to seeing him screaming in the graveyard all night and suddenly sees him in his right mind? I think Jesus says, stay here. Stay right where you are and tell people what the Lord has done for you because right here, they'll be able to see the truth of your words in a way that they never could see in a place far away. The call of Jesus is always a wise call. He always knows what he's doing with our lives. Jesus and the storms of life, not just the internal things, the external things are not beyond his control. Secondly, the kind of battle we're engaged in, though not always looking like this, is a spiritual battle, and we need to pray as though we recognize it. And third, sometimes our ministry is most effective right where we are. And that is walking through Mark's gospel and seeing the glory of Jesus. Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, We'll be, we'll be continuing with the kind, the kind of mind that Jesus wants to form in his people. Um, the theology of an isolated prisoner. The kind of mind Jesus wants. How do you know when the Holy Spirit's working in your mind? What does it look like? That's what we're going to be studying on, on Sunday morning. And at night, our new series on repentance. The kind of change is repentant people make. Stay in the word, church. God bless you and love one another.